16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Sally brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seen him. Tucson, and it's, uh, it's just good to be here together this morning. It's good to have you all here, good to see you. Um, I'm going to start my little stopwatch here, um, so don't mind me for a moment, because um, I uh, may or may not have gone a little long last week, you know, if you noticed. Um, so I want to, because I thought I could read that clock, and I can't. So also with that, you might feel like this is a super young church, but we just look at, I have gray hair in my beard, I can't even see the clock. So if you feel like you're older here, hey, I'm, I'm there right there with you. But um, we have a lot to get into. I actually want to give you a heads up, though, um, before we get into the sermon. And if you've never heard me preach before, or you're new here, or you forgot, um, I have a speech impediment. So just want to make sure that you all have a heads up on that as we go and walk through. Um, I just want you to know what's, what's happening. And also, again, before we get into Mark um, chapter 15, um, we're, uh, I want to again give you a heads up on where we're headed. So this is our last week preaching through Mark. We've been in it for about a year. We've been walking through the gospel according to Mark. It's been really fun and shaping, and I'll get into that more um, here in a bit. But um, before that, so next week, we're going to start a new series. It's our Advent series. And Advent is something that the church has historically celebrated throughout the um, world. And it's the time of anticipation, the week after Thanksgiving, the, the four, and then if you count Christmas Eve, the five um, kind of times we gather corporately building up to Christmas, we build anticipation and excitement for the coming of Jesus and in and, and, and his birth. And so our, our theme this year is hope, and I'm excited for it. We have a lot of fun stuff. Um, in fact, we're going to have our first ever Christmas Eve service, so kind of keep keep posting on that. It'll be hosted in, in uh, somebody's home, but... Just excited about that. We're getting big as a church. Um, we're gr- 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 growing up. Amen. Um, we're still young, though, a little bit. Like, I just had a little mistake. I, I forgot to turn off my mic. Um, when after I did the mic test, I was out in the lobby welcoming people, and apparently my voice was coming through in here. It could have been a lot worse, if you know what I mean. So, if you've ever seen Naked Gun back in the day, it uh, could have been really awkward. So, thankfully, that didn't happen. Um, guys, I don't have time for this. Um, so... So, Advent, we're going to celebrate with an Advent um, offering as well, and every year this is something that we'll do, and this is above and beyond our normal tithes and offerings. We have an opportunity to give out of our abundance, um, whatever that might mean for you particularly, means we give out of gratitude in whatever God has provided 
we give above and beyond what we would normally give um, to be used for the, to go outward. We say we're gospel-centered and outward-focused. And so I want to encourage you to begin praying or to you know talk with your with your spouse and to consider how God might might lead you to give during this Advent season, and that will go into what we so we define our outward focus in three ways, and that is close, near, and far. And so close would be our benevolence offering, what we give to anyone within our congregation or anyone who comes to our church and says, I need help in this particular season. So we want to build up that particular um, part of our budget as well as near. So Safford School, where we meet almost 90% of the kids who go here um, are on reduced or free lunches. And there's a lot of needs within the school. And so we get to um, some of our financial um, offering we get to give towards Safford School, as well as we're going to take up some things, some very tangible, practical ways we can give to Safford School with some, you know, clothes and shoes and toys and things like that. So I want to invite you to, to, to think about that as well as foster care and adoption is a really significant need here in um, Tucson. And so we're kind of upping our involvement in that as a church. And then FAR, so close, near, FAR, just our global partnerships throughout the world, ways that we are excited to celebrate the advancement of the good news of Jesus throughout the world. So again, that's Advent. Um, you will need to indicate that whatever you give toward that is specifically for that. Okay? So however you give online or um, in an envelope or however you have to indicate that that goes towards Advent offering. Okay? So now, we're going to get into Mark. So go ahead and meet me in Mark chapter 15. And this is our last time in Mark. Um, and it's just, it's fun. I'm excited to, to celebrate together, to get into it. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, flip your hand up and keep it up. Okay? I want to make sure you have a Bible. So hold your hand up high. And también si necesitas la Biblia en español, tenemos solamente diga español. So we want to make sure that people, if you prefer to read the Bible in Spanish, can um, read it in Spanish as well. So if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Okay? We want to make sure that, that you have a Bible that you can read and underline stuff, and, um, and, and it, so that's yours. So with that, let me go ahead and pray. Okay? If we get into Mark, as you can tell, I'm excited. And uh, let me pray. Ask God to really lead us through this time together in, uh, in His Word. Yeah, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word, Lord, given to shape us and correct us and instruct us and to develop us as your people. And, and the whole story tells the good news of Jesus. So I pray that even now as we wrap up our study of Mark, Lord, that you will um, allow us to reflect and to think about ways you may have been transforming us as we come week in and week out, um, not just with an agenda of what we want to hear, but Lord, coming and submitting ourselves to how you will shape us and lead us through your word. So again, thank you for that, and we have anticipation and expectation um, that you will speak to us um, in this last time in March. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so kind of right off the bat, um, I want to give you a heads up. Some of you um, may know there's a little bit of controversy surrounding the end of Mark. Um, in fact, if you have a Bible, if you want to go ahead and turn to 16, verse 8, that's not where we're going to start, but I just want to get this kind of out on the table, if you will, and kind of deal with it at the start, because there are um, supposedly two endings to Mark. Some say there's a longer ending and a shorter ending. 
to mark. And so you might be looking at your Bible, and some of you might be, some of you might thrive on like controversy and think we're going to spend 40 minutes just getting into this, and, and we're not, okay? Um, I think that would be a terrible injustice to kind of focus on the wrong thing, if you will, and just kind of, you know, argue all these different things. Um, so so it, the shorter ending that is um, ends in Mark 16, verse 8, is almost every scholar agrees that the earliest, most trustworthy manuscripts end in verse 8. And, and then there's also a longer ending that includes verses 9 through 20. And, um, and, and that was the, the not as early, not as dependable manuscripts include that, and they were circulated around. And now let me just address that one first. Okay, the longer ending, it's all good stuff. It's all true stuff. It's mostly taken from the Gospel of Matthew and inserted there. It has the Great Commission of Jesus. It's all really, really good stuff, um, but, but it's likely not what Mark, the author, actually wrote. He wrote a letter, or like a sermon, most likely to the church in Rome who was under persecution, and he wrote with a particular style, with a particular um, intention as he wrote, a style. And so the, the last part, verses 9 through 20, doesn't really match up with that. And so you might be wondering, well, why would someone add that? I don't know. All right? It might be, like, the type of person that just got to finish a joke, even if it's, like, nauseatingly obvious, right? Like, the horse walked into a bar, and the bartender said, you know, why do you have a long face? You know, why the long face? And then that guy has to jump in and be like, oh, you, you know, because horses have long faces, and long faces also mean that you can be down and usually, and, and, it's, and you're like, all right, we get it. Like, thanks. Right? Maybe this person, maybe that it was added because they did it, they just wanted to make the implications of the resurrection of Jesus, like, abundantly clear. Right? I, I don't know. But the shorter ending kind of ends really suddenly. It's like a mic drop, okay? It's like if you ever, it's like, you know, spoken word just coming at you, boom, 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 mic drop. Now respond. Okay, it, it's like, um, it's a tragedy, okay? So if some of you don't know, mic drop, don't get that, it's never stop eight mile, or you don't know kind of the way this thing works. Um, it's like, you know, Shakespeare, a lot of Shakespearean uh, plays and things that he wrote, that, and you know, um, Ro Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth and, 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 and Hamlet, they kind of end in tragedy. That's the style that Mark has written in. Okay, because this is kind of the key for us to be, to, to lean in. Remember, the whole way Mark has been written is an invitation. Lean in, listen, participate with the story. Okay, like in Romeo and Juliet, when they both die, sorry, right? Spoiler alert, if you didn't know the way that ends. They both die. You're invited to lean in and say, that's not right. It shouldn't be like that. Love shouldn't have to end this way. So similarly, the author of Mark has written in such a way that we, the audience, have particular clues into who Jesus is. It begins, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom, in your face, that's who Jesus is. And then, all throughout Mark, nobody knows who Jesus is, but we do. And we're challenged to consider, will you see and respond to Jesus as who he says he is? God the Son bringing his perfect kingdom? Or will you be like everyone else walking through, confused with a particular agenda, trying to mold and manipulate him who you want him to be? 
How will you respond to Jesus? And so that's the question that we're faced with as we wrap up Mark right now, as we look at the resurrection of Jesus. How will you respond to it? Does Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, does it shape your life? Or is it just something that you respond similarly to some of the characters that we'll see? So as we pick up in verse 40 now, again, we believe that it ends in verse 8, that that's what we're going to assume, and we'll see why. We now pick up in verse 40, and just remember the last thing that we read right before this last week was a Roman centurion, a, uh, an unlikely, like this guy, was, this guy murdered people, he was an unlikely person to, to worship Jesus. And then Jesus breathes his last, he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the temple curtain, the dividing line between holy God and sinful humanity is ripped into from top to bottom. And this, this kind of thug centurion is the first person to rightly see and respond to Jesus. And he says, true, this was the Son of God. And now we pick up in verse 40. And now there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary, Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So first, just right out of the gate, what we have here is again the author Mark is just turning our systems and the systems of the world in this time on their head. Okay, because remember, a Roman centurion, this kind of guy, this enemy of Jesus, the enemy of, of religion, the enemy of the Jewish people is the first person to worship. And then Mark goes right into now explaining some women. And that just was not done in this day. You did not, if you wanted to give some credit to your story, you didn't mention women. And women were the least of these in this society. In fact, their witness wasn't even worthy in court, right? Like, if you were going to call a witness to give, you know, some, some, some credibility to your testimony, you wouldn't call in a woman. And so I know a lot of people, there's this kind of idea of what is God's view about women? What, is, what does Christianity think about women? Um, is, it, is it an old, archaic view, and now we're more progressive, and the Bible doesn't platform women in any way? That could not be further from the truth. There's a lot that the Bible says about sexuality and, and, and about identity and about male and female and about God's complementary design of who we are and how we function, but in every way, he affirms women as his image bearers. And the fact that in his word that these first witnesses to this massive event, the resurrection of Jesus, God the Son, is giving incredible, um, incredible respect to these women. Because he mentions them by name. Which again, he just wouldn't do. And this is almost like a challenge. You would think, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, go find these particular women. Because they saw where he was buried. They were following along. In fact, many women were ministering. Many women were a part of Jesus' ministry throughout. And so guys, this isn't like hate on men time. It's not men back in time or anything like that. But what this is, is this is, this is again God exposing that the particular structures of society that we set up and the things that we give affirmation to and the places where we affirm, God says, no, 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 I will choose whomever I will. A Roman centurion will declare who I am and worship. And these women will be the first witnesses 
in who I am and what I have done to the climactic event of history. And so sometimes the pendulum in it swings and we kind of err on one side or the other. And, and I've heard it said that no, the way that the, the scripture presents it is that that, that, that that pendulum is nailed to the wall so that we see the kingdom of God and how he operates. And yet it's not all good. Okay, I think there's also an affirmation in this and integrity given to these women because it's also, they're not presented in the most kind of compelling light. So they're there, right? The twelve disciples, right? All men, Jesus' selected disciples, one of them, Judas, betrayed him, and then now these eleven disciples, they just went ghost all of a sudden. They're MIA, we don't know where they are, we learn elsewhere that they're hiding out in the upper room, they're not even there, okay? So don't even go there, they're absent. But these women who have been with Jesus all along, remember, we've been witnessing Jesus He's calmed storms. He's raised someone from the dead. He's healed people. Right? They've been there. They've seen this stuff front and center. And yet, it says that they're watching from a distance. Watching God is a really good thing. It's a sign of true discipleship. Watch with expectation, with hope, with anticipation. God, what are you doing? What are you going to do? What have you done? But then the way these women are watching is kind of from afar, skeptical. I don't know. Let me observe what's going on here. Something doesn't seem right, so I'm going to kind of take a back seat and just observe from afar. And let me say, if that's you here today, if you're new to this whole thing, if you're new to Christianity, you're new to church, you just want to investigate Jesus, I'm really, really glad you're here, and I want to invite you to be there. There were a lot of people who were kind of on the outskirts observing Jesus. Well, but I want to encourage you not to stay there. And if you're, if you're regularly coming around, I don't think that's a place where you should feel comfortable, consistently, just kind of standing back observing from afar, because the call of Jesus is to come near. He says, come and follow me. He says, repent and believe. Turn away from, from sin. Turn toward God. Turn and trust. I, I believe that as you look to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, you can't just stay afar. And so we look at these women as a picture, not of true discipleship, not of something to aspire to in this way, but they're fearful. In light of everything they've seen, they're still fearful. And again, we're, we're leaning in and we're saying, why? Why are they so afraid? Don't they know who Jesus is? Didn't they hear the confession of the centurion? And yet, they're fearful. And then, in a, and then we pick up now in verse 42 where we see a contrasting picture. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, so this is like normal nomenclature in their day, uh, okay? Like the day of preparation would be like us saying like, hump day, right? Like, you know, like, you know, right? Hump day is Wednesday. Or day. Well, this was their kind of normal language. This was like, hey, we're almost at the Sabbath. It's Friday. Okay, so he throws it in there. So this is Friday. This is Good Friday. This is when Jesus had just breathed his last and called out and died on the cross. And then it says in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So he was a member of the council. The council is likely the Sanhedrin. Right? If you remember, Jesus is tried by the religious council. The Sanhedrin. 
the religious authority of Judaism. And in the same way that this Roman centurion who just oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus had his eyes open when the veil was torn and he responded in a worshipful response, now we have another seemingly enemy of Jesus, a member of the religious council that tried him and, and, and sent him before Rome, before Pilate, to be crucified. It says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. The same language, the same idea as these women, right? The women are looking on from afar. These three women, these followers of Jesus from all along, they're skeptical, they're looking, but they're not so sure. But then, in contrast, this unlikely character, um, Joseph, he's looking. The language there is he's got anticipation. Is the kingdom coming? Uh, God has promised this kingdom, and he missed it, right? He missed it in Jesus, but now... Seeing these events, seeing this stuff, he says, maybe something's changed. Something about this kingdom is coming. So he takes courage. Because true discipleship, being a true follower of Jesus, requires courage. It requires looking with anticipation. Not putting God on trial, but asking questions in such a way that when he reveals himself, you see, oh, perhaps I need to lean in. And so he leans in, he takes courage, and he goes before Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, because usually the crucifixion took a long, long time, and Jesus died pretty suddenly, and Pilate's surprised, and so who does he call, verse, uh, verse 7, who does, or sorry, verse 44, who does he summon to himself? Centurion. Just fun, isn't that crazy to think that this, this man with incredible influence, this Roman officer, this centurion, saw Jesus and proclaimed, man, surely this was the Son of God. And then he still has a job to do. He's still in a position of honor and respect. And so when Pilate needs to dis decide whether or not he's going to give the body of Jesus to this man, Joseph, or not, he calls the centurion. And the centurion affirms it. He says, yeah, Jesus died. He breathed out his last. I don't know that he actually says how he died or whatever. Um, Mark doesn't really want us to know that. But, but he shows us that, that the centurion's influence is being used here by God. And he, and he affirms the death of Jesus. And so Pilate learned it and he gave the body to Joseph. Again, just sit there for a minute. Joseph could have, uh, he's taken up incredible risk here. Right? Like, imagine, right? You conspire with all your friends. Hey, this Jesus guy is a challenge to us. Let's get him killed. And then all of a sudden he's killed, and then you get up and you go, hey, something's different about this guy. Can I have his body to have it prepared and put in the tomb? I want to honor him, because something about the kingdom of God has to do with this guy Jesus. And all his friends are going, dude, what? You sell out. What are you doing, man? We just, don't give this guy any more honor. Like, don't don't give him any respect, but he can do no other than respond as he sees the kingdom and how it's related to Jesus. And then Pilate, right, could be like, why do you want the body here? You want his insurrectionist friends too? Maybe I should arrest you as well. And yet, again, he sees and he's taken with courage. So he gets the body of Jesus. And then it continues on there that he, he, he um, Mark wants to show us what happens to the body of Jesus. So he mentions these women, he mentions Joseph of Arimathea, he mentions the centurion, he mentions Pilate, and he goes on and he mentions that a, a stone was rolled against the entrance of the tomb. 
And then we see later that these are heavy stones. They're, they're out of rock. It's as if he's certifying the death of Jesus. Okay? He doesn't want us to have any out here. Right? He doesn't want us to try to dismiss it like perhaps some of us have. And that, let me just say here, as we continue on, that this isn't written to answer every, every question that any skeptic might ever have, okay? Like, this isn't saying, yeah, well, maybe the swoon theory, right? Maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he was put in a cave and then he woke up all of a sudden. All these other theories that you may have heard that are trying to combat whether or not Jesus truly is the Son of God, whether or not he truly died on the cross, whether or not he truly rose from the dead, not just that, whether or not he is truly risen today. In facing that question, how do you respond to the resurrection of Jesus? Honestly, the only answer you can have is yes, I believe and will follow and worship him and give him my life, or no, I just, for some reason, I'm not there. I don't want to believe. I don't want to trust. I have questions. I have hurts. I need some answers. But I don't think you can have, I don't think it's an option to say, well, the resurrection, who knows? Nobody really knows all this stuff. Because if you dig in deep enough, you will see. In the thousands upon thousands of crucifixions, and Roman history just tells about tons of these, there's not a single case where someone crucified didn't die. There is absolutely no way, after the exhaustion that we've seen Jesus have, that he didn't, that he somehow all of a sudden mustered up the strength to unwrap himself from the linens that he's wrapped in to push this massive stone down, to, to sneak by the right? It's just, I could get into it, right? I said I wasn't. It's just not an option. So what I'm asking you for is just be honest. If you're here today, and I'm asking you, how do you respond to the death and resurrection of Jesus? You either need to lean in and say, I want to hear more. I want to believe. I want to have faith. God, help my unbelief. Open my eyes. Show yourself to me. Or and just admit that that's where you are or respond in faith and in worship. But there's really not an option to kind of dismiss it. Maybe it just won't work. And so continuing on here, we see this last part where again he mentions the women. And I just want to want to hammer this home because I actually read a quote that he says here, um, where he says, and the women were watching in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Again, this is massive, guys, because nobody would do this. Like, you can't, nobody would say this. In fact, one man, um, Celsus, a first or a second century Greek philosopher, just to get an idea, I actually read this, to get an idea of how people would think of women, this, this philosopher dismisses Christianity by saying this. There's no way Christianity can be true. Because the resurrection of Jesus is based on the testimony of women. And everybody knows women are hysterical. Like, okay, that's Greek philosophy, right? We kind of build Greek philosophy up and like all this stuff, and, right? No, but obviously God affirming women has chosen two um, illegal witnesses to the climactic event in human history. And other people dismiss it. Yeah, women are the witnesses. God says, no, it's so true that I will choose these women to be the ones 
So I will reveal myself to first. And so they see from afar. And now pick it up. In chapter 16, we get into the resurrection of Jesus. And let me just encourage you. Let me say again, welcome to chapter 16, right? We've done that. You can turn to your neighbor. Welcome to chapter 16. This is the last one. We've done that all along. We've gone from chapter 1, chapter 2, all the way through. All right, we didn't skip around. We've marched our way through. And now we come to this. Again, getting prepared for the mic drop of Mark, building up to the resurrection of Jesus. We get into chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, so that's Saturday, that's sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint them. And very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So it's the, this is very early on Sunday morning, okay? If you ever wondered why does the church gather on Sunday morning, not on Saturday, and some people, as specifically Seventh-day Adventists and other places, will say, well, why don't we worship on, on Saturday? That was the Sabbath. We, we worship on Sunday because Sunday is the day when Jesus rose from the dead, and um, Saturday was the Sabbath day, and so in fact there's kind of a mystery involved here. Jesus died, he breathed his last, he's taken his body, he's put in the tomb, Friday. And then what the church historically has called Holy Saturday as a massive mystery around it. What was going on on Saturday? The main point here is Sunday. In verse 2, what does Mark say? Very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen. Right, we just remember here the last time we heard the, the cycle of light talked about, darkness came. Right at noon, when the sun is at its highest, and then when Jesus breathed his last at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that's the time of the sacrifice. That's the time when the priest would offer up sacrifices to God. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for sin, the sins that you and I have committed, the sins that have, have defined our lives, Jesus took that on himself and breathed his last and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And darkness was there, because darkness is judgment. And darkness is disorientation. Darkness is the result of sin. Poured out on Jesus as he is the perfect sacrifice. There is darkness. And as an audience, you and I reading through this, or preaching through this as it would be done, we would have read that, and then we would have continued to read, and we're still surrounded in darkness. Jesus... God the Son, the good news, the King who has come to bring the kingdom of God. Darkness, disorientation, judgment. His body put in a tomb, wrapped up with linens, a massive stone put there. Darkness. But then on Sunday morning, the sun has risen. And Mark wants the goosebumps that we are feeling to be there. He wants us to lean in and to realize something has changed. Some, one man has said it like this. He said that the resurrection of Jesus is the hinge on which the story of the world turns. This is the event that shapes all of history, all of creation, all of our lives. And so... The sun has risen, and yet, and yet, audience to this 
tragic story. How did these first women come? They came with spices to anoint Jesus. Isn't it ironic? Jesus said time and time again, on the third day I will rise. He said the Son of Man will give himself up. He will be crucified. He will die. And on the third day he will rise. And here it is, the third day. His disciples are MIA, right? They're not even there. They're not like, hey guys, it's the third day. Wake up. Let's go check. Like looking at her. Let's go check. Remember Jesus said all this? But again, they just missed it all along. Like us, so often. They go to the tomb looking for Jesus. And that's admirable. But they come with spices. Because nobody was expecting the resurrection of Jesus. This is a massive, massive difference. Because I believe that a lot of us in this room have come to see Jesus with spices in our hands. Because they came expecting to find Jesus still in the tomb. And if that is the Jesus that we are here to find, a good example, a martyr, someone to set your life after, a good little bit of religion, because religion is good to have in your life, a way, right? Love others, treat others the way you want to be treated. Jesus is a good example. That's the Jesus that's still there in a tomb. We're ready to be anointed with oils and spices to have his body honored, to be laying in a tomb decaying. But that's not the Jesus that you and I are asked to respond to. In verse 5, they entered the tomb and they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. He's an angel. This is an angel. He's there. And they were alarmed. They're scared, right? There's a posture all along. All that they've seen, they're, they're fearful. And then in verse 6, the, he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. They're like, yeah, that's right. But he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him. Guys, he's risen. He's not here. Jesus, there's not an option to come to Jesus with spices in your hands. There's not an option to put Jesus on a shelf. There's not an option to mold Jesus to whatever you or I might want him to be. The only option is to respond to the real Jesus who has risen. See where his body lay. That's the only option. So I want to ask us right now, as we close, we consider how we respond to Jesus. I want to ask you two questions. On whether or not the resurrection of Jesus shapes your life. Having to do with sin and with hope. With sin. What do you do with sin? What do you do with your own sin? I'm not going to get into how, but I myself this week have had opportunities. After sin. As I've prepared this sermon to consider in that moment, God, do you accept me? God, how do you look at me right now? God, what do I need to do to get back to that place where I feel restored and reconciled to you? God, my identity feels broken. I feel like, like sin defines me. I feel like whatever I've just done, that is who I am. And then others who sinned against me. God, what they've done defines them. 
what they've done to me defines me. And then maybe you, you have a list of things to do. Have a quiet time and read your Bible. Maybe you sin late at night and maybe you think, I'm going to wake up early in the morning. Somehow that will help. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to journal. Oh, I know what I mean. Thankfully, it's Saturday. I've got Sunday the next day. I can go to church. Check. I can have an emotional response in worship. Check. Then I'll be good. That's a subjective dealing with sin. And that is not the way the resurrection deals with sin. That is not the way that God deals with sin. A good way to understand, does the resurrection of Jesus define my life, is to consider what do I do with sin. Because do you want to know what God does with sin? In the moment, the nanosecond after that moment of realizing the sin that you've committed, the sin that has been committed to you, right in that moment, before all the hoops that you can jump through, before you can kick that, before you can sober up, before whatever it might be, God says, it's done. It's finished. I forgive you. Because the cup of wrath, the cup of consequence of sin, has already been poured out on my beloved son. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is God pouring out the effect of sin in its full. Amen? And then, in this moment, when Jesus victoriously raises from the dead, the fact that the tomb is empty, that the resurrection has happened, that shapes your life. Because that shows that God is a God of restoration. That God is a God of forgiveness. That God is a God of acceptance. That God says, come near to me. Because Jesus has done what you cannot do. And Jesus has paved a way that you could not pave. So before you can do whatever you think you need to do to be right with me, just look to Jesus and thank him and confess and rejoice and worship and have that emotional response, not in order to be made right, but in response to the good news of Jesus. How do you deal with sin? And then lastly, hope. What does it look like for you to walk through a world full of pain and tragedy and hopelessness. Again, the option, some of you have heard of Pascal, Blaise Pascal, and a philosophical option is Pascal's wager. How many of you have heard of Pascal's wager? Pascal's wager says, you know, believe in God, take on a little bit of religion, in his case, in our case, take on Christianity, because hey, if it's not true, you're still a good person, you still live a good life, you still have some friends, you still go to potlucks, right? You still eat crackers and juice once a week. It's, hey, it's good. The wager is in your favor, but, man, if it's true, well, then you've done right. You're right with God, you've done the right thing. So, you can do no wrong. But I don't think, that's, God doesn't take that, God is not a, a wuss. Right? He doesn't give us that easy out. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the author Paul says, If Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, we are foolish. We're, pardon the term, we're caught with our pants down. We look stupid. Man, we, we are basing our whole lives on a lie. Man, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. While out, don't, whatever you want to do, make life the way you want it, because really there's no other, like, why would you 
believe, base your life on a lie if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. But if Jesus rose from the dead, because Jesus has risen from the dead, everything he has to say about you and me and us and how we live and how we function and how we relate and how we're married and how we prepare for marriage and how we respond to tragedy is defined by the fact that Jesus is not there for he has risen. Because guys, let's be real. If Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, every time we say, let's stand for the reading of God's word, or every time we say, we're going to dedicate some children this morning, or every time we celebrate a wedding, or a proposal, or an engagement, it's a cruel reminder to those who cannot stand. It's a cruel reminder to those who have lost young ones. It's a cruel reminder to those who are alone and are wondering, will I ever be known? Will I ever know? Will I ever have intimacy? If Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, you guys, I don't know how to bring comfort. I don't know how to speak hope. Because we should be pitied. It's foolish. There is no hope if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. But the fact that he has risen from the dead gives a hope that somehow can be transformed into rejoicing. That tears can be wiped away. That, that, that those who look around and say, I cannot stand right now, can be reminded, there will be a day when I will run. The fact that Jesus has come, not just to deal with us spiritually, but is bringing a physical, tangible, restored kingdom that we have hope to look forward to. That defines how we live now. We look forward to a day when the blind will see and the deaf will hear, when the mute, stuttering pastor will be able to speak freely. We look forward to a day when the lonely and the abandoned and the broken and the hurting can say, I will be known as I fully am known. That is a day that we can look forward to. How does that not shape our life now. How does the empty tomb of Jesus not define you and me and, and us? Because guys, somehow Jesus, raised from the dead, points to scars and reminds us that God takes really, really bad, hurtful, tragic things and makes them good. Amen? So as we close, let me remind us that our lives can be built upon the resurrection of Jesus. And Mark ends it abruptly and tragically in verses 7 and 8. The angel says to these women, But go, tell his disciples and Peter. I don't know why he singles out Peter. Probably because Peter's the one that betrayed him most pointedly. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. This is good news. This is a reminder that God is faithful, whether or not you and I are. God is on the move. Jesus is going in pursuit of sinners. He's going to find those disciples who are MIA. 
He's going to find those who have turned away from Him. He's going to find those who have sinned against Him and rejected Him and proven to be fearful and faithless. So let this be good news to you and me that our lives can be in response to the good news that God is faithful whether or not we are. And then in verse 8, it says that they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mic drop. That's it. Guys, at this point, we are on the edge of our seat. We're invited. If you've ever been to the Gaslight Theater or that kind of thing, and you've seen, right, you're invited to respond, and the bad guy comes out, and you say, boo! And the good guy comes out, and you say, yay! And then the, the characters are, are, are having an opportunity to choose what they're going to do. And we're looking, and these women, Jesus has died. Amen. Good news. Jesus has risen. Amen. Good news. Sin and hope defined by the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Good news. We're on our seats. We want to stand up and applaud. And yet these women and all of his disciples are gone and they're fearful. And the audience in Rome under terrible persecution and you and I walking through whatever we are walking through today are invited to respond and say, no, no, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't look from afar with skepticism. Look to Jesus. Take courage. Stand in worship. Live in response. Live in hope. For Jesus is alive. And that is good news. That we can base our lives upon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for good news. Thank you for your word given to us. Lord, I pray that we will respond to you now in worship, in singing, perhaps with tears that we don't know what to do with, perhaps in prayer, in the back as we need to pray together. Lord, if we have never put our faith in you or we need to have the reality of the resurrection reminded to us, Lord, let us pray together and sing and, and take communion. And Lord, I pray that this isn't just an event right now on Sunday, but I pray that every one of us would live our lives in light of the truth that Jesus is God the Son, that Jesus has come to bring His kingdom, that Jesus laid His life down on the cross, that Jesus took the cup of wrath and sin and disorientation and judgment and dealt with it by raising from the dead and that we can live our lives in light of that good news, full of hope, Lord Jesus, we love you, we thank you, we pray all this, and we respond in your name, in the name of Jesus, amen.